Today's lecture is underwritten by David and Brenda Goldberg and by Joe and Pam Canfer. Please join me in thanking the Goldberg and Canfer families as we thank all families for continued support of Chautauqua. Our speaker today is Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, an international religious leader, philosopher, and award-winning author who served as Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth for 22 years. Since 2013, he has held several professorships and currently serves as the Ingeborg and Ira Rennert Global Distinguished Professor at New York University. Rabbi Sachs has written more than 30 books, including his most recent, Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence, which was awarded a 2015 National Jewish Book Award. In recognition of his incredible work, Rabbi Sachs has received many awards, including the Jerusalem Prize for his contribution to diaspora Jewish life, and a Bradley Prize in recognition of his being a leading moral voice in today's world. He won the 2016 Templeton Prize in recognition of his exceptional contributions to affirming life's spiritual dimension. He was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen in 2005 and took his seat in the House of Lords as a life peer in October 2009. He's known as a crossbencher, which means that he chooses to sit on the parliament benches between the government and opposition parties. Rabbi Sachs began his philosophical studies at Gonville and Caius College in Cambridge, after which he earned a master's from New College in Oxford. He earned a PhD from King's College London as, and has subsequently been awarded 17 honorary doctorates. He's joined today, coming from London, um, uh, by his wife, Lady Elaine Sachs, and his executive assistant, Daniel Sacker. So ladies and gentlemen, cross-benchers and partisans, you who are gaining respect for the question mark in crisis of faith, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs to the Chautauqua platform. Sarah, thank you so much for those lovely words. And beloved friends, those here physically and all those who are watching on uh, Facebook live streaming, um, it's great to be with you in this extraordinary festival of thoughts and ideas in this enchanting place. But I have to thank you especially for making Elaine and I feel so at home, by which I mean I assume normally in Chautauqua you have brilliant sunshine. <laughs> <clears throat> but just for us, you made it dark and damp and wet, and we feel so at home. Brits love miserable. 
So uh, for making us feel at home and for all you do, thank you and bless you. Friends, um, there is an old Chinese curse which goes, may you live in interesting times. Friends, we are living in interesting times. Sometimes I think the world has gone so crazy that the best account of it was that wonderful remark by Woody Allen, which says, more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. <laughs> Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Well, that's how it seems sometimes. Or it seems like my favorite Jewish text of all times, which goes, start worrying, details to follow. <laughs> because the truth is, we are living through one of the most profound revolutions in all of human history. It's a time of political, economic, and social change brought about by the Internet, a revolution which is the greatest and most fateful since the invention of printing in the West in the 15th century. And I sum it up in a single phrase, cultural climate change. Are you with me? We are worrying about our physical climate change, and that climate change doesn't just make things warmer. What it does is produce more extreme weather conditions. And so it is with cultural climate change. It's not just extreme heat, but sometimes it expresses itself in the cold and the winds and the rain. An old pattern that has governed the West for four centuries is broken, and a new one has not yet emerged. And it's brought great damage to that spiritual experience that is our ozone layer. And uh, the result is a revolution which goes in many directions about the role of religion in society. It's not so much a matter of more religion or less religion, because the truth is both are happening at once. A lot of people are getting more religious, a lot of people are getting less religious, and the result is a series of storms in the West, and even more so elsewhere, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, and what I want to do today is simply say why I think it's happened and what we can do about it to save the planet from cultural climate change. So, first of all, let me analyze what is happening. And the simplest answer I can give is that the West had three master narratives, which we've held since the 17th or 18th century, and those three master narratives have functioned for the, all those centuries. And today, they've all broken down. Those three master narratives are number one, the world is getting progressively more secular. Number two, the world is getting more westernized. And number three, any religion to survive in the contemporary world has to accommodate to society. It has to go with the flow. Those three 
stories have held for four centuries, but today each one of them is breaking down. So let's take them one by one. The secularization thesis. The secularization thesis has been functioning for four centuries, and it has four dimensions, one for each century. First of all came the 17th century, which saw the secularization of knowledge. In science, there was Newton. In philosophy, there was Descartes, both of whom were not irreligious or anti-religious. They were very religious indeed, but they sought to base knowledge on non-doctrinal foundations. And that's the essence of Newtonian physics and Cartesian philosophy. So 17th century, the secularization of knowledge. 18th century, the secularization of power. In two great revolutions, the French in 1789 and before that, the American in 1776. And I hope you don't hold me responsible for George III. <laughs> but that, in the 18th century, saw for the first time the separation of religion and power, or as you put it in the States, between church and state. The 19th century saw the secularization of culture, the 19th century was the time when people built concert halls, art galleries, and museums as a way of encountering the sublime without necessarily going to a house of worship. There were substitutes for the church. And that was the 19th century. And the 20th century, beginning in the 60s, 1960s, saw the secularization of morality as the West broke free from its traditional Judeo-Christian ethic, especially in relationship to the sanctity of life on the one hand and the sanctity of marriage on the other. However, four centuries of secularization lead us to expect that the process will continue, but it isn't continuing because that in the 21st century, we are seeing, at least in the Middle East and Africa and Asia, the world getting more religious, not less. We have begun an age of de-secularization. And then thirdly, uh, sorry, the second meta-narrative was westernization. It said that any country that want to, wants to enter the modern world has to become westernized. And that too has been true for four centuries. But today, no longer, because what we're seeing is four very ancient civilizations that had been eclipsed by the modern age, suddenly returning with a vengeance. By that I mean China, India, Russia, and Islam, whether in the Sunni form in Saudi Arabia or the Shia form in Iran. So all of those, for all of those cultures believe that tomorrow belongs to them, not to the West. So that's the second master narrative, secularization, westernization. And the third was accommodation, that is that any religion to survive in the modern world has to accommodate to adjust to the wider society. Today, the opposite is the case. For the last half century, it has been the conservative churches that have been growing, not the liberal ones. It's been orthodox and ultra-orthodox synagogues that have been growing, not the liberal ones. 
in Islam, it is the radical forms of Islamism that are flourishing while the more moderate forms are in decline. And in each case, what we are seeing and what we haven't seen for four centuries is not religion as accommodation, but religion as resistance. It's not religion making its peace with the world, but religion opposing the world, challenging the world, or simply withdrawing from the world. And these are not small developments. Half of the world is getting less religious, half of the world is getting more religious, and the tension between them is growing day by day. That is cultural climate change. And it's the biggest thing to happen, certainly in the West, since the great wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries. So this is a major, major thesis, moment of interesting times. And the second question that I then want to ask is, why has it happened? And here I want to turn to two extraordinary prophets who saw it happening long before the rest of us did so. One of them, I don't know if his name is familiar to you, was Alastair McIntyre. Does anyone recognize that? Probably not, but Alastair McIntyre is a great philosopher, once a Marxist, I think today a Catholic. And Alastair McIntyre in 1981 published one of the great books of the 20th century called After Virtue. For me and for many others, that was a life-changing book. And its argument was that the Enlightenment attempt to build morality on rational foundations, the Enlightenment project, had in fact failed. And we were now, he said, arguing, entering a new dark age. Or, as he put it, it's not the case that the barbarians are at the gates. Actually, he said, the barbarians have been governing us for some time. And the only thing to do, he said, was to retreat into closed communities and do what St. Benedict did in the sixth century, build monasteries. And that has become known this year, actually, as the Benedict Option. Some of you will have seen or read the book by Rod Dreher and other Catholics like Charles Chaput have written the same thing. His book is called Strangers in a Strange Land. And um, so that, Alistair McIntyre saw this happening in 1981. The second one was 16 years earlier, a famous, a great rabbi, no longer alive, Alistair McIntyre is alive and we wish him good health for uh, 120. So are you familiar with the Jewish phrase, Admeva, bis 120? You know, that's the kind of Jewish idea of a long life although my grandmother, my buba, used to go around wishing everyone, may you live to be 120 in three months. <laughs> they used to say, why the three months? I don't want you to die suddenly, she said. <laughs> so in 1965, Rabbi Soloveitchik published a book called The Lonely Man of Faith, and he argued that the two accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not simply different documents, they are two different dimensions of the human condition. The 
humans of Genesis 1, made in God's image, told fill the world and subdue it, that is what he called majestic man, what we would call secular humanity, you know, the dominant, dominating nature. And Genesis 2, where the humans are created from the dust of the earth into which God breathes life. And they are placed in the garden not to subdue it and conquer it, but of Shomra to guard it and protect it. And that he called covenantal man. So he said these are always in tension with us, in us, the secular urge to dominate and control nature and the religious urge to be in awe of nature. And everyone read that bit of the book, The Lonely Man of Faith, and they all assumed that Rabbi Soloveitchik was what we call a modern Orthodox Jew. He was saying, you know, that's good stuff. Um, but big advice, always read the last chapter of any book, because people got him completely wrong, because in the last chapter of the book, he said, until now, those two elements have always been part of each of us, and we wrestle with them. But today, he said, Genesis 1, majestic man is so powerful, so dominant, the secular is so dominant, that for Genesis 2, the human beings with the covenant, spiritual, simply can't compete anymore, and therefore, if you want to maintain your spirituality intact, you have to withdraw from the world. And that was the Jewish account, 16 years before Alastair McIntyre, of what Jews would, they wouldn't call it this, but it was the Jewish equivalent of the Benedict option, withdraw from the world if you want to keep your faith. And these were real prophets because they saw it coming a long time in advance. If I can lower the tone for a moment, I just have this thing in my mind. Is it a scene in one of the Indiana Jones films? Or I saw a building called Keystone here. Is that right? There's one here. So is it from Keystone Cops? I don't know what. But you remember when the hero is trying to escape from one car to another and he, he reaches out and puts his hand and his head in another car, and his head is in that car, and his legs are in that car, and they're going along in parallel, and suddenly there's a traffic island in the middle, and the two cars have to go either way. And that is what is happening to religion and society. For most of the time, we were able to have our feet in society and our head in religion, or the other way around, whichever. But today, the two cars are diverging and they can't be held together any longer. So those were the two voices who told us in advance that that was going to happen, and that is what I call cultural climate change, the walking in opposite ways of religion and society. And now I simply want to ask, how does this affect us in the contemporary world? And the answer lies in three dimensions. First, family, what is happening to the family. Second, community, what is happening to community. And third is what is happening to society. What happens to family, community, and society when the West loses its faith, its religious faith? The first one, family. Let me begin. You, you, I'm sure you know this, that in England there are certain people who believe that God is an old man 
with a white beard whose name is Charles Darwin. <laughs> he is the patron saint of atheists, okay? And uh, one of the most famous speakers ever at Chautauqua was William Jennings Bryan, I believe, who fought a battle against Darwin and Darwinism in the name of religion. Now, one of the great ironies of cultural climate change is that if Charles Darwin were alive today, he would be one of the most passionate advocates for religion, not against religion. How is that? Because for Charles Darwin and natural selection, what is the test of adaptive fitness? The answer is reproductive success. You hand on your genes to the next generation. That, for Charles Darwin, was the mark of fitness. And today, the most secular area in the world is Europe. Europe is thoroughly secularized. And it is spectacularly failing to hand its genes on to the next generation. You know that for a population to remain stable, the birth rate must be 2.1 for every woman of the population. 2.1, you have stable population, zero population growth. Not one country in Europe has been anywhere near 2.1 for years. Throughout Europe, the range is between 1.8 and 1.3, in some cases 1.2, the lowest of them all in Germany. And the truth is, this is not only just happening in Europe, where it's happened for two or three decades now, several decades, it's even happening here in the States because there was a result published last week in your press that uh, showed figures from the National Center for Health Statistics that showed that the birth rate in the United States is currently the lowest on record. So you're not quite where Europe is, but that move has begun he even here in the States. Here in the States, where the fastest growing religious category is the nuns, you know, the young people who say, of no faith. Now, why is this so? Why does religion make a difference to birth rates? Well, it's fascinating. You know, people say, and I'm sure rightly, and I say this, and Elaine certainly says this, that the most fulfilling dimension of your life, if you're privileged to have that good fortune, is to be a parent. But did you know that people who have children are less happy during the childbearing and raising years than people who don't have children? <laughs> That's the paradox because, you know, as the Jewish saying goes, without children, what would we do for aggravation? So you see, having children and raising them involves enormous sacrifice of time, money, effort, and energy. Now, religious people understand the concept of sacrifice. We live by it. It's part of our lives. But throughout history, you know, I mean, but people in a secular, consumerist, individualist culture find it much harder to live by sacrifice. Nothing in the culture says sacrifice.
And throughout history, that is the reason why when a culture begins to lose its faith, its birth rates start to decline. This is not just happening now, it's happened throughout history. It happened in ancient Greece in the second century BCE. It happened in ancient Rome. It happened in Renaissance Italy. The people who've done the research say there is no case on record in which a secular society has been able to maintain its birth rates. Within a century, every society, when it becomes secularized, starts to decline demographically. So the 21st century is going to be more religious than the 20th century, even if not one person changes his or her mind from being non-religious to religious. It will happen for a simple reason, because throughout the world today, the more religious you are, the more children you have. This is a global demographic fact. This incidentally explains why levels of immigration to Europe, which have been the big storm hitting Europe for the last decade are so high, higher than they've ever been before in history. This is not, Europe hasn't admitted immigrants because it's more generous than any time in the past, but because it has lower birth rates than in the past. Immigration is the only way Europe can counter their declining and aging populations. Europe will die because it wasn't mindful. It misread Charles Darwin, took him as a patron saint of atheists, and failed to realize that actually he was the prophet of reproductive success, of having enough faith to bring a child into the world. And that is how religion, or the loss of religion, is causing the contraction of the family. Now society. <clears throat> And I want to stay with Charles Darwin for a moment. There's a famous problem that Charles Darwin realized with his own theory. He was very honest and admitted this was a problem for his theory. And it threatened to undermine the whole principle of natural selection. I can at best explain Darwin's doubt in terms of, have any of you seen that film about Alan Turing and how they broke the German code in the war? It's called The Imitation Game. You remember Benedict Cumberbatch, who's playing uh, Alan Turing? Kiera Knightley, rather fetchingly, playing Kiera Knightley. <laughs> and she kind of encourages Alan Turing to tell a joke, which he does as badly as I do. And, and the, the joke he tells in the film is they're two explorers in the jungle, suddenly they hear the sound of a lion. The first one runs off to find a place where both of them can hide. The second one starts putting on his running shoes. The first one says to the second one, you're crazy. You can't run faster than a, the lion. And the second one says to the first one, I don't need to run faster than the lion. I just need to run faster than you. So here is the, the uh, classic tension between the survivalist, between the altruist who wants to save both of them, and the survivalist who just wants to escape his, uh, himself. Now, which of the two gets eaten by the lion? The altruist. 
And Darwin knew this. And therefore, on Darwin's theory, altruists should have gone extinct over time because they're the ones who get eaten by the lion. And yet Darwin realized that in every single human society that ever known, it is the altruists, not the survivalists, who are admired. And this threatened to explode his whole theory. However, in the end, he came up with the answer, and he wrote the answer in his much later book, The Descent of Man. And I'm going to uh, just summarize what he said in today's language. What he said, in effect, was, although Darwin had not yet, the world did not yet know about genes, but Darwin, in effect, said, we hand on our genes as individuals, but we only survive as members of groups. And for a group to survive, it has to have altruism among its members. It has to have people who put the interests of the group above their own private interest. And that is how Darwin solved the problem. We need altruism to create groups, and without groups, we don't survive. Now, this is a really interesting subject, and it has become huge in research since um, the 1980s in all sorts of disciplines, evolutionary psychology, economics and sociology. It involves game theory and a wonderful thing, the conversation killer of all time called the iterated prisoner's dilemma. And one way or another, people call it different things. Biologists call it reciprocal altruism. Economists, uh, sociologists call it trust. And economists call it social capital. Are you familiar with that phrase? Social capital. When a society is full of people who are altruists, who help one another, that society is rich in social capital. When you've got a society of individualists who think mainly of themselves, it is poor in social capital. Now, the classic work on social capital was written in our time by a great philosopher, uh, sociologist at Harvard called Robert Putnam. And Robert Putnam is famous for his observation that more people are going 10-pin bowling in America than ever before, but fewer are joining teams and leagues. And he called this bowling alone. And that, for him, became the symbol of an individualistic society which is rich in individual life, but poor in social capital. Poor in altruism, in other words. However, Robert Putnam, like Charles Darwin, was a very honest, is a very honest and thoughtful scholar, willing to challenge his own ideas. So he published Bowling Alone as a book in the year 2000. But in 2010, he published a fascinating book, really fascinating, called American Grace. And in this book, he says, no, social capital does exist in America. But where will you find it? In churches, 
in synagogues, in temples, in houses of worship. People who go regularly to synagogue or to church, actually there are also health benefits as well. Did you know this? One big survey in the States, this is absolutely true, found that if you go regularly to a house of worship, your life expectancy increases by seven years. You live seven years longer. Or as I said to Elaine, maybe it just seems. <laughs> However, the truth is, if you are a regular go to church or synagogue, you are more likely to help a stranger in need, give a meal to the hungry, shelter someone who's homeless, find somebody a job, give to charity, whether the cause is religious or secular, get involved in voluntary work, all these things. The best predictor is not class, ethnicity, or education. The best indicator is do you or don't you go regularly to a house of worship. And Robert Putnam refined the thesis and said it doesn't matter what you believe, it's do you go. An atheist who went regularly to church is more likely to be an altruist than a deeply believing believer who keeps to himself. So if you're an atheist in synagogue, you're probably a decent kind of guy. We have lots of atheists in synagogue. <laughs> my, my, actually, <laughs> one of them, the great, late, much lamented philosopher at Columbia University, um, Sidney Morgenbesser, actually said when he was ill, I don't know why God is so angry with me just because I don't believe in him. <laughs> or another lapsed Jew, the physicist, quantum physicist Niels Bohr, you know, a friend once visited Niels Bohr and saw over his front door a horseshoe and said to him, Niels, you can't believe in that, can you? And Niels smiled and said, no, of course I don't believe in it. But the thing is, it works whether you believe in it or not. And that essentially is what Robert Putnam said about religion. It works whether you believe in it or not, just so long as you go. Now, in other words, religion is the great source of community in the contemporary world. And if there's one person who would not be, have been surprised by that, it is the greatest, one of the greatest writers on America ever, Alexis de Tocqueville who in 1832, when he published uh, Democracy in America, the first part, said that religion has a huge influence in America because it supports altruism, whether in families or communities or voluntary associations or charities. He called this, he gave it a lovely phrase, he called it the art of association, of coming together. And he gave the importance of that an even lovelier name. He said, the art of association is our apprenticeship in liberty. It is that ability to come together as communities to help one another that is our apprenticeship in liberty. 
And today, this kind of community exists mainly in religion. And let me give you a dramatic example of this. In 2011, a British medical charity called Macmillan Nurses did a survey in Britain. In, this is 2011, it's a long time ago. And it discovered that the average Brit between 18 and 30 has 237 Facebook friends. When asked how many of those could you rely on in an emergency, the average answer was two. A quarter replied one and an eighth replied none. Now believe you me, Facebook has no bigger fan than me. I think it's fantastic and wonderful and does bring people together. But there is a difference between a Facebook friend and a real friend that you meet face to face. And the funny thing is that just when that report came out, it made me very mindful of something that happened in our local synagogue. Three years earlier, in 2008, a young couple had joined us in London, in our local synagogue, because the young man, that young couple with three young children, and they'd left New York to come to London because the young man had just been made head of Lehman Brothers Europe. Within two or three weeks of his arrival, there was no more Lehman Brothers. And three years later, in 2011, he got up in the synagogue and made a speech, an impromptu speech, saying, my wife and I and our children are going back home after these three years in Britain. I want you to know that without this synagogue and the friends we made here, we could not have survived these three years. We'd uprooted ourselves completely. I had no job, no friends, no anything. And everyone in the synagogue reached out to help. And you must know stories like that from your local church or your local house of worship. Community is alive and well today, but in religious environments. And half of America today don't have those supportive environments. And that is why two of the people whose views I most respect because they're so perceptive in America today, Charles Murray on the political right and Robert Putnam on the political left, came to the same conclusion. Charles Murray in 2012 in his great book, Coming Apart, Robert Putnam in his 2015 book called Our Kids. And between them, they came to the same conclusion that half of America has supportive friends and communities and families, and half of America doesn't. And it's become not one nation, but two nations, a divided nation today. So if you lose your religion, you see birth rates decline, but you also see community begin to decline. And therefore, third, society. Society, what is society? And I want to say something very simple. Over the past 50 years, political discourse has been dominated by two institutions, the market and the state, the market economy and the liberal democratic state. But society is something different from the market and the state. Society is about culture and our shared values and the way we act towards one another. It's about Again, to quote that great phrase from Alexis de Tocqueville, it's about habits of the heart. It's about our shared spaces in the public square. 
And the thing about society is it isn't the market or the state. The market is about the production and distribution of wealth. The state is about the creation and distribution of power. Society is about relationships that don't depend on wealth or power. They're the way we behave to others, to friends and neighbors and strangers, without the market paying us to or the state forcing us to. And in Britain and America in the 19th and 20th centuries, we had very strong societies. Britain did, America did. Strong collective identity, strong shared moral code, strong voluntary associations. The English tended to take this for granted. A 19th century Englishman once wrote, to be born an Englishman is to win the first prize in the lottery of life. That's why Americans love Brit so much, isn't it? <laughs> As an American friend said to me, you know why they said in Britain the sun never sets on the British Empire? Because you can't trust the British in the dark. But America, which received wave after wave of immigrants, had to work for this identity, the shared bond of society. And they had a word for it. And that word is a very interesting word. It's a key word in American politics. That word is covenant. Presidents often spoke about it in their inaugural addresses. John Quincy Adams did in 1825, Benjamin Harrison in 1889, Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1937. The most explicit one was Lyndon Johnson in 1965. Listen to just one sentence at random from his inaugural address. They came here, the exile and the stranger, and made a covenant with this land. Conceived in justice, written in liberty, bound in union, it was meant one day to inspire the hopes of all mankind, and it binds us still. If we keep its terms, we shall flourish. And the most famous expression of the American covenant is a phrase that is perhaps the key phrase of American politics. We the people. It's a phrase you never hear in Britain, but it's a key phrase in American politics. It's there at the preamble to your uh, constitution. It was the leitmotif of Barack Obama's second inaugural address, he used it five or six times. We the people is a phrase that comes from a covenantal view of society because it embodies this notion of collective responsibility, that we're all in this together, and we're all responsible for one another. That's a very rare and special and very religious idea. And of course, it comes from Judaism and Christianity. Covenant is a key word both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. And it became the basis of what sociologist Robert Bella called the American civil religion. As America becomes less religious, the word covenant appears less often. And absent the covenant, all we have left is the social contract. The social contract is something different. 
Social contract is like the contract you have with your mechanic or your dentist or the local supermarket. You pay and you receive. You pay your taxes and you receive government services. And the parties argue about who has to pay less and who gets most services. But that's just a contract. It's not a covenant. It's not about we are each responsible for one another. And if we lose the social covenant, all we have left is the social contract. Less and less gets done by private citizens on the basis of this sense of collective responsibility. And more and more work that was once done by families and communities is today done by the state. It's outsourced to government agencies. The result is that you get a bigger and bigger state and a smaller and smaller society. And that is really bad news because in the social contract, some win and some lose. The winners win big and the losers lose big. And you don't have this sense of shared identity. And the losers very often are the ones who don't have access to networks of support. And they are left vulnerable and alone. As Ari, Hoch, Ari Hochschild, who has spoken or is going to speak, is about to speak in her brilliant book, Half the people find themselves as strangers in their own land. So we've gone through the three categories. You lose your religion, you begin to lose your families and, and the w will and the sacrifice to have children. You begin to lose strong communities and you begin to lose the covenantal bond of society itself, this society of we the people. Now, if I am right, huge consequence follows. It turns out that Western freedom, the thing that was born in England in the Sixth Revolution of the 1640s and in America in 1776, that is not the default setting of the human condition. It turns out to be a highly specific outcome of a particular Judeo-Christian tradition. And you won't find it exactly its exact parallels anywhere else. Holland, of course, also part of that covenant, but very few other countries. It was Puritan or Calvinist in origin, and then subsequently modified by figures like Spinoza in Holland, John Locke in England, and then later by Jefferson and his friends here in America. And that is a very, very special, special kind of freedom. So let me sum up my argument. We're passing through one of humanity's great moments, a cultural climate change. And the signs of it are that the weather patterns that existed for so long, the progressive secularization, the progressive westernization, the progressive accommodation of religion to society, those weather patterns no longer hold. We are entering one of the great world's great ages of desecularization, and it is the rise of non-Western cultures that will shape the 21st century. The end result is, and we saw how Rabbi Soloveitchik and Alastair McIntyre and others warned us of this decades ago, but the result of which is that lose religion from the mainstream of society, you will lose the sanctity of marriage, you will lose the bond of community, and you will lose the social covenant that says a pluribus unum, we're all in this together. 
So, one thing is clear. Religion is not about to die. As I said before, the religious have bigger families and stronger communities. And they're going to grow in numbers and confidence in the course of the 21st century. But the secular West is in real trouble. It's reenacting a scenario played out many times in the course of history, in Athens and Rome, in antiquity, in Renaissance Italy. And the same thing happens each time. A culture, a civilization at the very height of its affluence and its creativity finds that people are becoming more individualistic. They become more hedonist. They become more skeptical of religious beliefs. And that causes a loss of social cohesion, of social energy, and social ideals. Now, no one said it better than a great American historian. Now, does anyone recall this name, Will Durant? Now, unbelievably, Will and Ariel Durant, I think his wife's name. Now, don't forget Will Durant, who, as a young man, wanted to be a priest, actually became an atheist. So listen to what this atheist says, and it's unbelievably powerful. After his huge study of the, the story of civilization, he says, what happens at a per certain point in history is that the intellect, here I'm quoting him, the intellectual classes abandon the ancient theology and after some hesitation, the moral code allied with it. Literature and philosophy become anti-clerical. The movement of liberation rises to an exuberant worship of reason and falls to a paralyzing disillusionment with every dogma and every idea. Conduct, deprived of its religious supports, deteriorates into Epicurean chaos. And life itself, shorn of consoling faith, becomes a burden alike to conscious poverty and to weary wealth. In the end, a society and its religion tend to fall together, like body and soul, in a harmonious death. Meanwhile, among the oppressed, another myth arises, gives new form to human hope, new courage to human effort, and after centuries of chaos, builds another civilization. That is Will Durant. Very sober warning for our times, though that was written 60 years ago. So in a world like today, religion can do one of three things. Number one, it can attempt to conquer society. That is the radical Islamist version. Number two, it can withdraw from society. That is the Benedict option, or the ultra-Orthodox option, or the Soloveitchik option. Or number three, it can attempt to re-inspire society, to do what Will Durant called giving people a new form of human hope and new courage to human effort. Well, if we adopt the first option, the radical anti-Western option, we will move straight away into the Dark Ages. If we adopt the second option, we will survive the Dark Ages, but they will still be dark. 
But if we adopt the third option of being true to ourselves and yet engaged in the public square, we just have a chance of avoiding the dark ages and of countering cultural climate change. And by religion, I don't mean religion as a substitute for science. I certainly don't mean religion in opposition to a free society. Don't forget the architects of freedom in the modern world, in Holland, in England, and in America, in Spinoza, Locke, and Jefferson. They did it in the name of religion, not as a protest against, but in the name of religion. So what do I mean by religion in the public square? I mean simply religion as a consecration of the bonds that connect us. Religion as the redemption of our solitude. Religion as loyalty and love. Religion as altruism and compassion. Religion as covenant and commitment. Religion that consecrates marriage, that sustains community, and helps reweave the torn fabric of society. That kind of religion is content to be a minority. I have to tell you, Jews have been a minority wherever we went for 2,000 years. And in the immortal words of Sir Elton John, we can all say as Jews, I'm still standing. So, religion can be a minority, but it can be a huge influence. It doesn't seek power, it seeks influence. It's engaged with the world, it's not in retreat from the world. And if we can do that, we might just bring those two cars closer together. We might just find that we can have our feet in society and our head in heaven. And we can bring the light that will vanquish the darkness. Boy, do we need that kind of religion now. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>